Well, in brief, I was texting with uh, some of my pastor friends throughout this week, and we always share titles of our sermons, and we always make fun of each other, and we always egg each other on. And if you're using the, the bulletin that you've been given, the, the title is, Is the Cross Required? And my buddy said, that ought to be the shortest sermon you've ever preached. It's yes. <laughs> Nevertheless, what are you, think about yourself here, what are you personally or individually known for doing? What are you known for doing? It's kind of a scary question that we might want to not answer, but what are you known for? And what is the reputation of your life known for? If you only got one word to describe your life's work, or you were allowed other people to say, this is what this person is like, what would that be? You know, think of someone like Neil Armstrong. What is Neil Armstrong famous for doing? Landing. Think about Richard Nixon. What is Richard Nixon famous for? Resigning. What is Michael Phelps known for? Winning. Apparently others had suggestions, but all right. (laughs) For our case and from our text, what is Christ wanting himself to be known for? What is the work of Christ known for? He he tells his disciples that he is on a particular mission now. He almost kind of focuses his energy towards something specifically in this text. He tells them that his life work is before him now. Everything that he's taught him, taught them, everything that it has been predicted to be about, this new venture is ahead of him, and all that he is, is to do to them and to us, will be about this very work. What's the reputation of Christ supposed to be like? If you could sum up this man's work in one word, what would it be? I want you to remember Matthew 16 as a whole, where Jesus first rebukes Pharisees and scribes for their adding to the scriptures or taking away from the scriptures. He warns then his disciples about the opportunity that they have to cling to the truth of his scriptures instead of the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Peter then confesses, we saw last week, Peter then confesses this brilliant inscription upon the name of Christ. He confesses brilliantly a succinct character sketch of of who Jesus is. Jesus had turned to his disciples and asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, on behalf of the other disciples, he gives them the title, gives him the title of Messiah. And he follows that up with the son of the living God. This is who Jesus is. And significantly for their souls, they see him as who he is, this long-awaited Messiah spoken of by the prophets, begotten, unique the only Son of God, and it's there on that confession that Jesus then sets his disciples' minds on, if you think of it, understanding what he has come to do. Bit by bit, they are growing and and grasping just who Jesus is. But what is Jesus known for doing? That's what he'll say in this text. In our minds, how would you answer that? Scripture will point forward to this. Scripture will, that is beyond this text, will point back to this. Our lives are said to be known for this particular confession. Our our lives ought to be known for his uh, reputation. What did Jesus come to do? What was Jesus's life work, you could say? Here's a man who said that he is to be known by his own death. He came to die. That's the mission that he's now on. He's to be known for his death. And today, if you think about it, through what lens, through what trajectory do you and I turn our affections toward God and gathered worship? What, through what lens did you and I sing earlier? Through what lens do you and I pray earlier? We, we say it often at the end of our prayer that we do this in the very name of Jesus. 
But what is that name? What is the culmination of that reputation? It's by the death of this glorious man, the death of Christ. Friends, as we briefly approach this text and we ask God to have his inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient word of God brought to us, whatever point of view you may bring to this text, whatever, whatever framework you might have of who Jesus is and bring into this text, I hope that you will allow the gravity of Jesus' words and actions confront whatever view you might have. Or to put it shorter, you can worship now by having his picture of himself consume whatever view of you might have towards him. He does this, in a, or Matthew pieces this together for us in, in just two ways. He, he shows that, that Jesus has a, a demand that he is announcing to other people. He, there's a demand now that's coming from Jesus' own lips, and it kind of hits you different than what we normally think a demand is. But then also we see the desire of what Christ is doing here. So first, I want us to, to hover around uh, verse 21 and see what Jesus' command and demand is all about. See here what Jesus calls us to understand about his own life. The disciples have put their cards on the table. And maybe you have too. Maybe you echo them. Maybe if someone were to announce you at the point of death, what do you believe? And you might say, I believe that Christ is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You might echo these men and what they've announced, recognizing that Jesus is the unique Son of God. Or, or later it's talked about as the begotten Son of God, who has the same character, possessing the same power, the same rights as God the Father. He's, he's the anointed an appointed man to deliver his people from their sins. This is what it means to be a Messiah, a deliverer. But I bet you remember from last week's sermon, somewhat surprisingly, that Jesus tells his disciples to then tell no one what they just saw and did, which is kind of surprising for the rest of us. Be hush-hush for a moment. Well, why? First, you need to know that the, that the term Messiah, it certainly has political overtones to it. So, so there's something deep within using that word that is political. From, from this news, if this news was heard too early, people would expect Jesus to come and conquer Rome by leading armies and shedding Roman blood. So he effectively tells them to wait. But there's another reason why he tells them to wait. And the disciples have certainly grown in professing who Christ is, but they've yet to comprehend their own professing words. They're in, but there's still so much for them to learn. So and this is so encouraging for me, that these men who have been around Jesus are still being taught, are still being led. And he's going, before you launch out, before I launch you out on this great mission, I still have more to tell you. It'd be like you and I, maybe uh, when I was turning 16, I had a two-day, uh, what do you call it, where you take driver's lessons, driver's something, driver's ed. I had a two-day driver's ed. It would have been bad if I got my, le my license after day one. I still needed more training. I still needed to prove that I could parallel park, something like that. So see, see this and why he's telling his disciples, okay, you're getting it, but be calm a little bit. I still have more to say. But look at verse 21 here. Look at verse 21. Let me read it. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from their elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Every one of these phrases in this long sentence counts. What is, it, what is Jesus saying to his disciples that from that time on? Why is, why is Matthew signifying that there's a dramatic shift in his text for in our case, for chapters and chapters and chapters, here now is a, is a linguistic shift in, in the tone and the approach of how you might view this. You know, if you're watching this on a stage, 
uh, like a play, the lighting would change. The background would change. Another character would come out and he says, from this time. And it marks a change in trajectory about Jesus. He is six months away from we would know of his death. But he begins to explain in this case and from this case onward how effectively and precisely he would save his people from their sins. Matthew then says that Jesus began to show his disciples because he's only starting the instruction. There would be many more months for them to understand who he is to the point where his spirit within me poured out and they would finally grasp exactly the Messiah who they've been proclaiming. That They figured the Messiah would swiftly achieve a majestic reign over Israel. And sure, they thought he might face some fleeting opposition, but, but nothing that he can't handle. Look how powerful he's been for so many, in our case, paragraphs. But he says here that he would suffer. And that suffering would actually be the essence of his deliverance of his own people. This is staggering to them. He needs to explain why so much of this. And you, you and I need to be reminded of this as well. So time, you might remember the song, Man of Sorrows. Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. We, we often sing very proudly the fifth stanza of that. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransom home to bring, then anew the song will sing, hallelujah, what a savior. We are pumped at that point, but it, we must not overlook the second stanza where it says, bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a savior. As Jesus looks forward, he is not only sharing with them of exactly what will take place, he will deliver them from what they need to be delivered to, but he is also saying at the same time, it will not come in a way that they imagine. And so he takes a lot of time to explain what all that means. Look more at his words, though. He doesn't just say that, he will, uh, that there's been a change, but it also, Matthew tells us that Jesus would tell them that he must go to Jerusalem. He doesn't say that he will go. It says that he must go. And he's predicting his death, but it's more than just a forecast of what's going to happen. He's not simply examining trends that predict the social storm leading up to his death. He's not trying to just fit himself in the, in the structure of how people might go to die, but he is saying that he must do something particular. Jesus will die, and he says, because he must die. It's not that he has other options, but he has one thing that he will do in order to save people from their sins, and he says he must go to Jerusalem. His death and resurrection are essential to God's design from all eternity. And every part, every facet of his death is determined by his goodwill. At the, at the empty tomb, an angel would remind the disciples of Jesus' words that, according to Luke 24, he must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. He must be crucified. And on the third day, he must rise again. This must from Luke parallels the must in its in its energy from the book of Matthew. And it demonstrates to us the amazing supernatural determination of our triune God who intentionally sought to save sinners by the very reflection of his own Trinitarian nature. The Father planned the very reflection of how this would come out. The Father planned the, secure, uh, the security of erring sinners. The Son achieved the redemption for the pleasure of the Father, and then the Spirit by which Jesus was empowered all along the way would then apply this glorious truth to those who call themselves believers. And so you and I can now proudly boast. We can, we can look at the effect of God's love in Christ to us because it was Christ himself who said he must 
go to die. The book of Hebrews says that through the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself unblemished to God by his blood from his own determination. Jesus would cleanse his people. And in Acts, Peter would later on testify to this in the sermon that he gave almost right off the bat where he points out this must as an obvious outcome in our own lives. Peter, in preaching in our Acts 2, that he's a man who preached in uh, one of these people who already knew uh, Jesus' miracles, he's saying that I'm someone who recognized who he was, and I'm actually now preaching to you all. You've seen him. You've seen these miracles. You know who Jesus was. And so he's not preaching to people who didn't understand. He's preaching to people who were denying this. He says, you've known Jesus by miracles and wonders and signs. And then he looks at them in the eyes, and he said, you, with the help of wicked men, put Jesus to death by nailing him to a cross. Well, also, Peter says that while they thought they did it themselves, he says, this was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. Now, Acts 2 isn't out of nowhere. And Luke, who wrote both Luke and Acts, had obviously promoted this idea. And in Luke 13, where Jesus says, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Friends, just hover around the word must and understand from that the determination of God's love for his people. And it must be within Jerusalem and be there that he would stop. Now, in hovering over the word must regularly, with the object of Jerusalem and the cause of him regularly teaching, because you're constantly being bombarded with thought and philosophy that will distract you from this. The reason why I'm hovering over this word must, the reason why you could, you could have a whole quiet time over just this word must, is because you and I are constantly fighting off and bombar- being bombarded by, by principalities and philosophies and affronts to the very gospel itself. You and I will constantly be tempted to think that nothing is centrally or powerfully controlled by God. Any of us that have ever been in a case where life just felt out of control, we are there being tempted by Satan to to think that we are acknowledging that even Christ is out of control. God is out of control. And what this word must allows us to do is to recognize that the, the one who holds the heavens together is the one who is also saying, I'm going somewhere in particular, and I'm controlling all the ways that we'll get there. As much confidence as you can have in anything in your life, you can have absolute, true confidence that Jesus demanded himself to go to Jerusalem to absorb the wrath of God for sins so that as we confess Christ, we can enjoy all of his glory because of his own determination. Now, I'm still, I'm hovering here just a little bit longer. I want, you to, I want you to look at his confident control. He's saying that he must go to Jerusalem, and then we see him doing that. Friends, that is the God who you pray to, the one who is powerful and in control. That is the one who you sing about. That is the one who you hear of. That is the one who you give yourself over to. When life says, I don't know what's happening. It's God who would respond, oh, I do. Because he said that he must go and nothing would stop him. Now, why Jerusalem here? This seems, maybe it's Jerusalem because it's just a holy place or it's a well-known place, maybe because it's the almost capital of religious thought in that area. In short, he says Israel because, or he says Jerusalem because that's where religion has turned very evil. So he's going almost as a mockery of the world's religions and saying, I'm going there to save my people. And Jesus will turn it on its head by mocking its corruption. 
prepare to be blown away by this. It's not just, uh, it's not just Jerusalem on its own because it's an important city. I got, I got this from a guy named Greg Beale. I want you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 8. Turn to the book of Revelation, all the way in the back of your Bible. Book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 8. I think this is just... This is just one of those things that is remarkable about God's good word. In Revelation chapter 11, the book of Revelation says that this world will oppose God and his people. And he demonstrates this. The the writer of Revelation was given a vision that demonstrates the world hatred towards God and then hatred towards his people by showing three ways that God will be opposed. Three ways that you, if you confess Christ will be opposed, where there are enemies of God that have three different styles, three different representations. And what's amazing is that they are given this symbolic vision of a city. You know, we might modern day think of this as Las Vegas. That's a sinful city, right? Or, or New York in every Batman movie, even though it's not really New York, but we all know it's actually New York because that seems to be the most evil place in our country, right? Here, the, the writer of Revelation is saying that look at how God is opposed, look at how you will be opposed, and I'm showing it to you with three cities. And he chooses the cities as Sodom, Egypt, and Jerusalem, where he says their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord will be crucified. Revelation points to a time where God's people will be killed for one of three reasons. Look at chapter 11, verse 8, where it says, And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified, meaning Jerusalem. These three reasons, Sodom obviously represents the sensuality and the perverse self-indulgence that is coming after you, and it is aiming to defame God. Egypt here represents the enslavement that we are in our sin. It represents the oppression that is against us to defame God's glory. It represents the injustice that you and I recognize all around us. And then this great city where the Lord was crucified, that's obviously Jerusalem, and it represents a moral religion, a religion that masks spiritual corruption with moral, we would say, good guy beauty where it is trying to convince you if you're just a a good person according to our rules, then God will love you. You can see how corrupt that is, even though it doesn't seem as harsh as something like Egypt or Sodom. So why Jerusalem? Why did Jesus say that he's needing to go to Jerusalem and he must go to Jerusalem? Well, together with Roman politicians, it would be the religious leaders of Israel, the priests, the elders, and the teachers on the ruling council that would be eager and waiting for him to arrive so that they could kill him. You see in this text the very mind of Christ as a teacher in glorious fashion. He shifts the disciples' focus with a purpose that he must go toward a place of absolute corruption. To conquer, they might wonder. To finally prevail, they would hope. To overturn, thankfully, in their midst. No, look, it says there, he says there that he'll suffer. He'll suffer by the hands of elders and chief priests and scribes. And be killed in the holy city. You can imagine around the rubble of the temple, amongst the smell of the spices and blood from sacrifices, and amongst the scrolls that were intentionally written about him, he would be killed in the most demonic mockeries of all time. Yet he's the one who's saying, I must go there. And with a subtle shadow that they've somewhat heard about with language like Jonah in texts before us, he says that he'll be raised to life on the third day. 
Now, he'll teach this to them over and over again. If you're here and you're going, that's a lot, that's a lot of stuff that I've, I need to contextually turn over in my mind regularly. Be, be encouraged that, that this is the repeated announcement that he will give to people close to him on a regular basis, which then brings the question up to us. For you and for me, though, do we need this teaching on a regular basis? Do we need this reputation and repetition of Christ's life and death and resurrection on the repeat. Won't that get boring if the only thing that we center our hope on is the reminder of the gospel in regular fashion, the reminder of Christ's death on repeat in our own lives? You and I have known that from time to time we came into the church this very truth. It's like, I get it. I know that. Perhaps it has struck home for you when you first fell under the conviction of your sin, but When we're brought into saving faith in the Lord Jesus, we are very often tempted to leave that behind so that we can chase new things about God. We we aim to wrap ourselves up with new knowledge, becoming almost Gnostic accidentally. But we have been taught that since we've been affiliated with the church in any capacity. It is our goal that for those of you who are kids, look at me now, all the little children, look at me. It is our goal that the things that you learned this morning in Sunday school are the things that you will continue to learn for the rest of your life. It will be amazing for you to be able to understand and know that the death and the resurrection of Christ all the more. But we can't possibly overestimate the force and shock of that statement to the disciples. The disciples, you and I, were used to it. I know the death and the resurrection of Christ. But the disciples were fully unprepared for the message that Messiah, that the Messiah must die. I mean, look at verse 22. Of course, they're shocked. Peter rebukes Jesus by saying that he shouldn't go to die. The prophecy about the sufferings and the eternal murder or the the temporal murder of the Messiah of God that Jesus is giving to the disciples here is utterly disturbing and surprising and troubling to the disciples in every detail. But we know that they'll soon see this. But again, what about you and me? As an aside, how often are we to remind ourselves of the death and resurrection of Christ. Think of this in your own Christian walk. Think of this in the desire that we might have, Crosspoint, to be known for. Think about this as me as a preacher, as I get up and do this on a regular basis. What, what do you expect me to preach to you? Why do we speak about Jesus' death so much? Why is it important for you to be known by nothing other than this truth? Where you're from, that's less important. How long you've been here, that's less important. How how often you may go to certain things or what kind of music makes you feel the most internally, those things are less important because the gem of this text is that the mission of Christ is the Son of God going on purpose to die and it bears repeating regularly. Because without Jesus' death on the cross and being raised from the dead, no person would stand in good, righteous favor before God and His holiness. Jesus' death on the cross was necessary as God desired to forgive. He desired to dwell. He desired to abide once again with mankind that He created, as if He's wanting to redo all of Genesis 1 over again, where He is at peace with His people by the reconciliation that was brought by the death of His own Son. But because God desired relationship with his people, he made a legal, logical, and for us, heroic way for us to have union with him again. A way for man's sin to be atoned for. For you want to look this up later, to be expiated for or propitiated for. Jesus' death on the cross was necessary because he was 
and is the only perfect substitute. Being God himself and sinless, Jesus alone could stand up to the wrath that was brought to him through the sins of the world and the suffering separation of that death. But it could only happen through death. It could not happen through pain. It could not happen through effort. It could not happen through desire, or it could not happen through him just being a good guy. He had to die. Because the wrath of God was satisfied against his own son, God allows all those who trust in his son to be adopted as children and experience his righteous love and relationship. This is the center, friend. You've got to realize this is the, this is the central pillar of the Christian faith. Every ounce of joy outside of that is because of this truth. Every, every moment of weariness or fear points itself back to this truth for growth. So speaking about Jesus' death ought to be so regular. It ought to be so routine because of what it eternally means to us as people. It is the center of the gospel's call, which is for us to call out to God for mercy. And because it happened, we can go to him with confidence because of his initiating love for us. So what was Jesus' demand in this new trajectory in his life? His demand was that he would go and take your place. Quite a demand. Now, second, I want you to try to grasp Peter's denial. I want you to look at the last couple of verses in this passage and grasp Peter's denial. What's Peter's response to this? What's Peter responding? How is Peter responding to these things? Go back to Matthew chapter 16. I'm trying to go there very quickly. Matthew 16, verse 22. What's Peter do? It says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Now, Peter is absolutely aghast here. He can't believe what Jesus is saying about himself and what he's going to do. He thinks that the Lord has temporarily, you can imagine, lost his marbles. He's gone crazy. And so he challenges the Lord. <laughs> he takes him aside. Can you imagine? Doing it? He takes him aside and he begins to rebuke him, to admonish the Lord Jesus, to say, you don't know what you're talking about. I think there are a couple of things that we can just take away from this application. This will serve as the concluding points, application from this. Here's why you need to grasp Peter's denial of what Jesus just said. This is a warning of what not to do. And by that, I mean instead, you and I must submit our thinking to the authority of Christ's very words. If we're to be Christ's disciple, we must submit ourselves to what he has said and to all the things in the holy book that are said about him. We must submit ourselves to his word. Thankfully, Jesus did not take Peter's advice. In short, we must submit ourselves to Christ's words. For a moment, Peter, who had just made this great profession, just the irony that Matthew brings in. Matthew is really a, a, an underrated writer in, in scholastics around the world. But think of this. He pieces together Peter just having this amazing pronouncement of who Christ is, this great confession. And then he begins to think with his flesh again. It's like, he, it's like he spoke out and had the most spiritual moment that you and I could have, and then all of a sudden he starts going back to his flesh. He's thinking, his thinking here is worldly. His thinking here is not spiritual. And how so? He's speaking the thoughts and the imaginations of his own heart. He's placing his will, his desire, in the person of Jesus. His reaction is understandable, though. Your friend, the one you love, the one you follow, is saying, I must go to die. And you would look at that and go, is there any other option? We'd probably all react the same. I don't want you to die. But Peter wasn't thinking spiritually here. In fact, Jesus himself says, Peter, you're thinking according to man's interest, not God's interest. 
And Peter has no idea that by saying to Jesus as he did, God forbid it, Lord, that Peter was asking for his own eternal damnation. He didn't know it at the time, but this is what it would mean if Jesus didn't die for those who couldn't die for themselves. It would mean that, G- that Peter would have his own damnation in his midst because if Christ didn't go to the cross, then we're all damned. Now, no wonder Jesus meets that rebuke with such a severe response. Uh, this is one of the harshest responses. You know, we, we all hear that there's uh, no such thing as a silly question or a bad question. Well, in this case, he, he thought he was doing something out of love for his Savior. And because it is so important for Peter to grasp, Jesus doesn't respond with, now, now, you'll, you'll get this. Hang on. I'll, let me tell you a little bit more. No, he treats Peter as if he would treat the devil who is stopping him from his midst. John Calvin says, What was especially necessary here was for Christ to show his disciples that his kingdom would not be ushered in pomp and in in circumstances, but not in riches, but with the joyful applause of the world who brings death. That was going to be the way that God would purchase our salvation. You see, Peter's response was motivated by misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom of God. This, in many ways, is just another call and reminder for us to constantly place our aim and our aspiration in wanting to grow spiritually on the truth that God has given us in his word. Peter, in a moment, misunderstood who Christ was. In a moment, he wasn't trusting the man who he saw. And and you and I go, I stumble like that every day. But remember what Jesus did to Peter, reminding him of his truth, even though it feels harsh. We are often corrected, sometimes harshly, but by a good God in the right direction. And by misunderstanding the nature of the Messiah, Jesus wanted to point him to this very truth. And you and I must understand very clearly what Jesus is saying here. We must understand that the cross is absolutely essential to his kingdom. We must understand that the cross is absolutely essential to our own salvation. And we must understand that the way of humiliation is actually God's way, ironically, of exaltation. Jesus is beginning to teach his disciples the true way of thinking. The second kind of takeaway from this by Peter rebuking the Lord, the second thing we can pull away from this is for you to take away that you must realize that the way to glory is the way of the cross. The way of glory is the way of the cross, and beware of any other suggestion. Look at verse 23 of this text. And he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus here rebukes Peter in a harsh way. The the way of the cross, he would say, is the way of glory. The way of death will actually be the way of life. And any other suggestion, any suggestion that says that there is a way into fellowship with God outside or around the cross, Jesus is saying that is demonic. One, it won't work. Two, it is in the wrong direction. There is a way into fellowship. There is no way into fellowship with God apart from the cross. There is no way into fellowship with God by your own good works. There's no way into fellowship with God with any other kind of religious experience because all these, you might think all these roads are ultimately leading up the mountain. What Jesus is saying is that there is one mountain and atop it there is one cross and no one else is going there but him. And any teaching that says there is any other fellowship of God apart from his cross is a lie. And Jesus makes this clear here because he says, get behind me, Satan. And we recognize that that phrase has been used. One other time earlier in this text, it was used when someone actually wanted to get in the way of Jesus saving people from their sins. 
and he treats them as if he would Satan. Get behind me. Why in the world would he say that to his own disciple, though? <laughs> he just told Peter, hey, on this confession and by the apostles' teaching, I'm actually going to build my church. And now he says, get behind me, Satan. That is, a, that is an interesting church growth project. Why would he say this? Jesus heard a satanic trap being laid in Peter's own words. In fact, Peter was speaking words not dissimilar to the words of Satan that spoke to Christ in Matthew chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Remember when he was being tempted? And Satan tempted him with saying, you can have all the things in the world if you call me Lord. And what did Jesus do there? Here, Peter is saying, if there is any other way that you can do what you want to do, if, you, if there's any other worldly thing that can be offered to you, then all you have to do is ask for it or go for it. Oh, Jesus, I can give you the kingdom without the cross, is what Satan said. Oh, Jesus, can you give us new life without the cross, is what Peter was saying. Lord, no, your kingdom your kingdom's going to be built up. Nothing of the suffering stuff. But Jesus' response is brutal uh, because Peter's rebuke was based on the wisdom of the flesh and that wisdom of the flesh had to be exterminated in Peter if he was to be saved spiritually. Peter's words represented the most sinister and subtle of Satan's temptations against the Lord and against his church and the Lord Jesus was not going to trifle with that sin. You think of just the the kindness and the mercy that Jesus gave us in instructing us of how he treated someone who was going to deny him his cross. Jesus' truth, we, again, we see here is at the very heart of the gospel. To deny the cross is to lose the gospel, to do away with his death. I mean, there, there are people who call themselves Christians who would say that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, but rather just went to sleep for a while. That is a, it is a lie, and it is wrong. And if it's true, then you and I have absolutely no hope. To deny the cross is to lose the gospel. To lose the gospel is to lose any hope of salvation. No cross, no gospel, no salvation. And so Jesus' response is decisive and divisive. One theologian says that there was not a moment in which Jesus, Jesus entertained the devil's suggestions. He knew that he was going to be confronted by the same tempter who at the previous occasion tried to entice him with a false promise. And so, with finality, he rejects the implied incentive to sin. And by doing so, he himself is carrying out the advice that he gave to others. Friends, I, th I think this is just a helpful uh, image or illustration of what it means to actually fight against sin in your own life. He, he didn't soften it, and nor should we. You're pursuing something, you're tempted by something, you say that I'm just this kind of person. He's not saying just to treat it gently. He's actually saying to uproot it completely. He's saying don't even mess with this in the same that we would also need to pursue. Cut it at its root when we pursue sin. Yet Jesus goes right for the root of this temptation. Now Jesus told the disciples about the cross over and over again, frankly because he had to. And so be encouraged when you need to hear the gospel every day, when you need to preach the gospel to yourself all the time, when you and your maybe wife are arguing and you go, you know what, let's reset ourselves, let's go back to the gospel, and how does that inform that you and I are sinful people who are warring against each other when we actually have something that has united us that is much more deeply. Kids obeying your parents, same thing too. You got a, you got a, you got a boss that you don't particularly enjoy? What is the gospel? And then how does that flesh itself out? And he is doing this with these guys over and over again. So be encouraged by his repetition of his death and resurrection that will come. They could hardly understand it. We see from Luke chapter 24. But eventually, you might look down on Peter in this midst, but eventually recognize how Christ transformed Peter's heart. 
Eventually, Peter did comprehend the cross and then how he preached it regularly. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness forever. By his wounds, you have been, have been healed. So friends, take heart. Submit yourself to the teaching of Christ so that you can announce the things that you have announced before. And later, Peter saw the cross as our salvation first and our example second. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter continued, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. Friends, who is Christ according to this passage? What is he known for according to what he says about himself? I pray that we learn the words of the Lord in such a way that you and I would regularly, confidently profess what Peter was drawn to believe. It may be so of us. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to your word knowing that it speaks truth about you. We pray that as we reflect on what it says about us, that that we would begin to understand you more deeply so that we can enjoy you more fully. Our Lord, you have not been quiet about yourself, and may your reputation of your Son be our hope in our life and in our death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.